You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. Your guide on the side. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Interesting uh, conversation. Matt, if you could just go to a therapist, uh, or if you didn't need to go to the therapist, and you could just do it yourself. We're going to put a lot of therapists out of business. <laughs> Ben's like, yes. I mean, therapists do great work, but many times they're just, they're they're really just reflective listeners, right? They're listening well. And what would happen if you had a friend that was a, just a really good listener? Are you that kind of friend that you can perform that listening function Um you know, for your partner to, to help get their emotions out. Oh, it's it's not easy. I get it. I know. I know. It's not easy. And so um, when you think about it, and I, I see this a lot in my practice, there's, there's these signs, okay? I call them, you don't need to just always be, I don't know, totally ready and engaged to just listen to your partner. But there are times you have to be ready to be engaged and listen to your partner. There's three signs I look for, and I learned about them. Um, I learned about this concept as an emergency medical technician. So right after, uh, uh, when I was about 21, I guess, I was an EMT on an ambulance, and I was certified in you know life support or basic life support and uh, learned all the tools and the rules and, and how, to, how to basically take care of somebody in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. And one of the first things they taught us is you got to check vital signs, right? Vital signs, because you need to know where your patient is. There's a very basic baseline for where your patient is, and you need to check, you know, pulse, um, respirations. If you could, oxygenation, see how well they're oxygenating. You could take a, a blood pressure, just basic signs. And the neat thing about humans is we pretty much have these very basic vital signs and then what happens is there's a very powerful um, pattern that doctors and, and hospitals use where when you come in and see them, you can say whatever you want to say about why, what you're feeling, and they'll be listening to you. But while they're listening to you, they're going to check your vital signs, right? They're going to check your temperature. They're going to check a bunch of different things. All of those are signs of something going on deeper down. And what I have found is just like we have it physiologically, we have vital signs. Emotionally, we have vital signs as well. So there's three signs I'm constantly looking for in the people that are around me. Negative emotion is a sign. There's a sign of something deeper going on. And if you see negative emotion in somebody, instead of yapping, instead of arguing and telling them your point of view, I wouldn't tell them. I would just try to understand where their emotion is coming from. So I look for negative emotion, I look for misunderstanding, and I look for mistrust. When I see those signs, I know I need to kind of get out of my agenda and get into the agenda of the other person, right? So if, if, my, if my spouse comes home and they're slamming doors, that's negative emotion. I should see that, pay attention to that. I should try to understand what's going on. Hey, babe, I can see you're frustrated. Tell me what's going on. I'm just mad because the kids took my whatever... And I can't find it, and I've got to go use it right now. 
There's frustration. Behind every negative emotion, you're going to hear a story. People want to tell their story because they would love the emotion to go away. So what if as humans, we could just start paying attention to the negative emotion, the misunderstandings. Misunderstanding simply means when something's going on and you don't know why it's going on and there's a misunderstanding. If, I'm, if, if I have a, a person that's, that's quiet and, and shuts down, I'm going to know they have negative emotion and I don't understand exactly why. I shouldn't just guess. Is this because of what happened last year? I mean, last year's example of, of this same, you know, behavior may not be very accurate. So I, what I'd love to do is recognize the emotion. You seem really upset. What's going on? Share with me why you're upset. Because if I could get the story, that would increase my understanding, right? And then if I could understand the person and not, you know, make them worse, then they could trust me. So that's what we're looking for in our relationships. Emotional management, understanding, and trust. That's the best thing I've ever learned to know when I need to be listening to somebody. When I see that they're negative emotionally, when I don't understand why and I don't understand their reasoning, try to understand it, and do they trust me to share it? Anyway, that's where I'd start working with the people I love, the people I care about, a little coach's corner for you right there. Emotional management, it's hard stuff, let alone doing it with each other. Near impossible. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Really, the art of stillness, it's something we don't, we just don't do. And you know what else I, I really liked about his, Pico in general is he's just, he's really approachable. He's, uh, one of the things he, he didn't tell is a story that he was in um, Japan on business. And while he was there, he just saw such a different world and he, and he, be, he was called. He basically felt like he was called. He saw these temples. He saw um, little wooden homes, all of these incredible things he wanted to to make a part of his life. So he really he went to New York, quit, did did all these things. And within a week, I believe he was back um, or relatively quickly he was back to Japan. Now, when he got to Japan, he decided he's just going to go join a monastery. So he went to a temple, joined a monastery. And you're like, oh, wow, what a guy, Pico. And then... A week later, he quit. He's like, I'm out of here. <laughs> These people, all they do is they do a lot of cleaning. And he didn't realize how much cleaning was involved in you know, monastic <laughs> commitments. And so he moved about a block or two away from the monastery in this small little place, apartment. And that's where he, he started his life and then ended up creating and finding his wife and her children and then ended up creating, again, a fairly monastic life, he felt, um, but was able to offer more of himself um, than just instead of just the cleaning. So anyway, powerful thing. And where I, you know, a lot of people are, aren't prone to go, you know, to a monastery or aren't prone to go do meditation or whatever yoga. But let me just suggest where you might want to create some stillness is in some conversations in your life. What if we could just be more still and um, in in listening? And in hearing what people are saying, what if we just allowed more space in our talk, our conversation, so that everything wasn't always about, um, you know, me needing to compete, me needing to run away, me needing to argue, me needing to entertain you. So try just with your family, with your kids, with your spouse, creating, um, just creating peace, 
creating a space because I, I feel strongly that we need we need to learn to just be still in our thoughts and allow um, other people to influence us more. We are so into trying to convince and convert everyone to our specific way of thinking that we sometimes don't even allow that spirit to come in. And that, that spirit, by the way, is is the definition of inspiration is where the spirit is inside, is coming from within. And if you truly want to inspire somebody, sometimes the best way to do that is to just shut your flapper, <laughs> not to be rude, but shut your mouth and allow your words, allow your just sensitivity, allow your emotion, allow the peace to do the talking. And sometimes you'll find out it's a much better communicator than you ever will be. Uh, have you ever heard the quote that says, who you are speaks so loudly, I can't hear the words you're saying. So maybe the stillness that Pico's trying to teach us can come from just being the person that we need to be and, and being the person we need to be in the way we need to be it, in the space we need to be it, at the right time we need to be it. It's, it's, that's the convergence, I think, of spirituality, where all of a sudden everything we are in the right moment, at the right time, it can converge and we're an open, you know, vessel, willing to be and do what we need to be and do in any space. I know that sounds all foo-foo-y, but the reality is, think about your greatest moments. The One of the greatest moments of my life where I felt that spirit the most and stillness the most would be a baby being born. And it's pretty chaotic, right? Then there's that peace, that stillness. When everyone goes quiet... And the baby's there, and all you do is you just hold your baby. And that, ah, now you can breathe. And then, you obviously, you've got to count the fingers and the toes because you don't, you know, you got to make sure you got everything. But the peace is there. And so I think in our lives, we'll, we'll feel that a lot more. I also think that peace, I think I'm, I believe in God, and I think he wants you to feel peace. And interestingly, nothing seems to kind of create more, you know, almost anti-God than just complete chaos and overwhelming um, just confusion. So turn some things off. Test it. Test Pico's advice today. Test it. I dare you. Just create space. You dare do 15 minutes? What if you just in your marriages committed to listening to each other for 15 minutes a night? Oh, really? Oh, jeez. I mean, I love her, but don't make me listen to her for 15 minutes. Come on! You're not going to get to find out who she really is if you never listen. And if you're going to try to, you know, influence your partner to listen, you might want to make sure that when you're talking, it's not always negative. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. And we don't consciously sit there and say, I will now go try to look better by being morally superior to everybody. But we all know somebody that has to tell us when we're doing something wrong. Or I had friends growing up in high school that if I, I would make a joke that they would laugh at, but then they'd be like, oh, Matt, shouldn't say that. And it, it was hilarious. That's why they were laughing. And they're like, man, what's wrong with me? Why... Why do I say that? Because I must be such a misfit. Anyway, morality. And one of the things I talk a lot about when I work with my clients is 
we we there's a thing called logical force. Okay, so logical force is when we make a decision based on logic, not morality. For example, um, if you have a friend that called you a name or embarrassed you at a at an event, it would be logical that you don't talk to her. I guess for a week. Ignore her. Ben does this all the time with the producers around him. It's very effective. Well, okay. And um, we're talking against it now, so you wouldn't want to probably argue that it's effective. I just need to put that in. Okay. Sorry. So, so you're justified, right? Because you're doing something that is right. If you went and interviewed your friends, nine out of your ten friends, if you had ten friends, Ben, nine out of ten of them would say, yeah, I'd be mad too, and I would ignore Stacy. I'd ignore her. Because that was totally rude. The problem is, even if it's even if it's logical for you to be mad, even if it's uh, and you can see this in our political world, even if it makes good political sense for you to put someone down, for you to destroy someone's career or you know credibility, it, just because it is logical and it it logically can be justified, it doesn't make it moral, right? Your morals, your moral value system and your logic system don't all they don't go together because many times the most moral thing you can do when you see something that's been done wrong, like let's go to the story of the guy that killed the lion. Um, I guess you could gang up and jump in and send it to everyone you know and show how moral you are or you could just shut your flapper and – Go make a donation to preserving animals, right? But no one would know about that. So what's the point? What's the point? Why would I do something that nobody knows about? I guess because it's moral. So when I think of a moral person, I think of a Gandhi, uh, a Buddha, Mother Teresa. These people didn't promote their actions. They just acted. I think you're being naive, Matt. (laughs) Is that – are you trying to show – are you trying to get me mad so I would – No, I'm trying to be logical. It's your larynx. Um, Got to look after yourself in this world. See, again, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Trump. Um, that's a perfect example. That's a perfect example. All of a sudden, it's logical to defend yourself. You feel like you have to defend yourself. Even the guy that was going to rush the stage, he was making a good point. Donald Trump's a bully, so all I wanted to do was just take the – I just wanted to take his – his speaker away, his pulpit away. I wanted to get rid of his stand. I didn't want to let him have his voice anymore. Logical. Logical. Not so logical when you think of the fact that there was tens of thousands of people there that would have stopped him. Uh, Twelve or so, he said, you know, Secret Service people that could have killed him or killed someone else trying to stop him. Not super logical. But he feels like he has moral authority to do that. I guess one of the problems we run into in our society is we think we have a right and that right means we have no responsibility. We have a right to say what we need to say, to use our voice, to be mad and to take a stand and even charge the stage. We have a right to do this. But there's also a responsibility. Do you know how bad that could have gone? Secret Service that have weapons – This guy could have either been killed or other people harmed or injured or Donald could have had a heart attack. Things could have happened. There's a responsibility that comes along with all of this. So just because you have a moral right 
or a right, logical right, doesn't mean it's going to be moral and healthy for you. And remember, check your own gut. If Why do you need to post certain things? Look at what you're posting. If you're somebody that is constantly posting political things or constantly having to beat up the latest issue morally, um, why are we doing that? Ask yourself, what, does, what do I gain by being this type of person? In the end, you're probably not actually improving your moral system. In the end, your moral system is more between you, your God, you and your people around you, you and the followers that respect you and trust you. That's where your moral system creates strength, not in the masses necessarily. Unless you're somebody that is always in the masses uh, where people following you, I'd keep your moral compass fine-tuned to the people around you. Thanks for joining us, folks. We're going to take a break, come back, and take off on our next topic. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Hey, friends. uh, You know, since 2007, the number of complaints for religious discrimination filed with the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, has risen significantly. It's hard to see why. It's not hard to see why when you consider everything that's going on, right? Uh, The increase in immigrants of diverse faiths, greater workforce diversity, globalization of, uh, of businesses, they all play a role and, um, and, and tend to make it a little more complicated to, to understand maybe possibly uh, religious diversities, religious backgrounds of, of other, other people. So our goal with this uh, next segment is to figure out what we can all do to play better together and to, and to preserve each other's um, religious freedom. And also in a company to, to get work done, right? And to get our other goals achieved. And they don't have to be, it doesn't have to be an either or. You know, for many employers, we, we got we to gotta still get the widgets made and we got to get the work done. So we've asked um, uh, Cabrina Chang to join us. Cabrina is the clinical associate professor of business law and ethics at Boston University. She spends a lot of time researching and collaborating with experts on new ways of innovating business strategies and education. And she wrote a wonderful article in HBR, a Harvard Business Review, um, on this subject, what companies can do when work and religion conflict. Cabrina Chang, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You've been honored to have you. And this, to me, is a, it's a really big issue. We've, we've heard a lot about religious freedom, and, um, and yet... Uh, talk to us. Why, why is it? Why is it? You know, boiling over today. Do you think what's what's the big impetus? Well, I think a lot of things are happening. Exactly as you said. You know, an increased globalization of the workforce, um, more diverse religion in immigrant groups, and also you know a push on the side of employers to sort of bring your whole self to work, and they're very. You know, they, some employers um, host religious affinity groups or allow um, groups like that to use meeting spaces. So it's sort of a combination of more and different people entering the workforce and workplaces becoming sort of more open um, and more sort of accepting in many ways mm. of religion in general. Um, so it, there's bound to be 
you know, there's bound to be in any situation, you know, a conflict under some kind of circumstance. But I think these two sort of more recent trends are leading to an uptick in complaints filed at the EEOC. I mean, religious conflict at work is nothing new. Um, you know, it's been around for, you know, for years and years right. and years and years. Um, but I think, you know, all of those, all of these sort of recent developments um, make it a little riper than previously for for um, conflicts to arise. One of the um, things that you mentioned in the article was the the situation that happened recently at a Cargill facility mm. in Fort Morgan, Colorado. Talk to us about that because it, it, it seems to lay a pretty nice foundation for one example of what could happen. Yeah, so this case, um, and it is a case, uh, a complaint was filed in March. Um, you know, I think about this case and I think it's really hard to see it's hard to see a clear direction. And granted, you know, we don't know exactly what happened, but what we do know is cargo, this cargo plant in Colorado is a meat processing facility. Um, so it works on a very regimented schedule with ships. You know, they have to disassemble a certain number of cattle per day. Um, it's a very regimented workforce and line. Um, so they have had um, an influx of uh, Muslim employees, and these particular employees, I think the majority of them are Ethiopian and Muslim faith, um, in this little town for many, many years. And according to Cargill managers, they've always had a religious accommodation policy, and they have tried, um, you know, to make the workers feel welcome. They mm-hmm. created two spaces for prayer and reflection. Uh, and then on one day in particular, um, 11 employees asked uh, their manager for their five-minute break to go pray. And the manager, this is, like I said, so much of this is in dispute. Um, according to one side, you know, the manager said, well, we don't have enough people on the line to process everything we need to process. So could you go in smaller groups? I can't let 10 of you get off the line at once. So could you go in smaller groups? The other version uh, goes something like when the employee asked the supervisor, the supervisor said, you know, there's too much prayer going on. We're not going to have prayer breaks anymore. Um, You know, you can go now, but we have to change our policy. There's too many prayer breaks. Um, So two very different stories. Mm. Nevertheless, the employees took their prayer break. Um, and then 10 out of the 11 um, resigned that night Wow! and resigned at the end of their shift. And, you know, over the course of three days, it grew into about a 150 employee protest. They didn't show up for work. And I guess at the end of the third day, many of them were fired because they didn't give notice that they weren't going to be missing work and, um, so they violated that absentee policy, uh, I guess, that Cargill had. Hmm. Um, but you can sort of see both sides yeah. of, of what happened. And, and it's a very, like I said, it's a very regimented workplace. Um, so that does put restrictions, um, practical restrictions on an employer. Well, and like, I mean, I've been to a lot of these plants as a consultant, and you can't, you know, you shut down some lines it's going to cost you like $10,000 a minute 
So, sure. yeah, I bet. So it becomes a policy of $50,000 if you have to shut down the line. I mean, but you sure. also have incredibly creative people that could find better ways to rotate employees or, you know, or, or go through the process. I guess the part of it is um, – I guess it's almost anticipating it is is a possibility instead of just having to react to these situations well, right. in the second. Right. I, I think you're absolutely right. And and that's what makes me wonder what really is going on in this lawsuit because if if these if this group of religious workers have been at this plant since two thousand and five, I mean not all of these exact workers, but uh, there was a large influx of them in two thousand and five at this one cargo plant. And Carville has been sort of trying all along. I, I don't know what would have um, precipitated this one event to cause 150 people not to come back to work. Right. If you know, so you're right. And and I said that in the in the article that you mentioned that you know there there are ways that managers can anticipate staffing needs and. Um, it you know to the extent that you can anticipate, you can plan ahead, mm-hmm. which might nip this kind of thing in the bud. And, and flexibility, it seems like too, on both sides. Um, I mean, because sometimes you know it could be a, a flu virus went through the town and fewer people came in because they were sick. Then that's going to demand some flexibility for a day. Sure. In, right. in in some of this, talk about Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act. Um, Teach us, teach us what what really what are the rights of uh, against religious discrimination and and employment. Okay, so under Title VII, there are five protected categories, and religion is one of them. Race, gender, national origin, race, gender, national origin, religion, and color. Um, for which uh, an employer cannot base an employment decision, any kind of employment decision, based on those five characteristics. Uh, with religion in particular, um, there are a couple different kinds of claims. For example, you could claim that you were treated differently because of your religion. Um, so, you know, I wasn't hired because I'm Catholic, that kind of claim. Um, what the workers in Cargo are saying is not that they were treated differently, but that the employer refused to accommodate their religious conflict. So another type of claim is a is an accommodation claim. The employee notifies their employer that there's some employment practice um, that conflicts with a religious practice. And in this case, obviously, it was the time that the break needed to pray versus adequate staffing on the um, processing line. Mm-hmm. Um, once the, under the under Title Seven, once the employee notifies the employer of the conflict, the employer has an obligation to figure out an accommodation. Um, and this is this is not an easy thing to do. Um, you know, the law requires what's called a de minimis effort, meaning it doesn't require a ton of effort on the employer's part to accommodate. They don't. They don't have to sort of bend over backwards to figure out an accommodation. Their burden to accommodate is relatively low. Hmm. That being said, uh, the employer has to try and figure it out, but also the employee has to be willing to cooperate with the employer to try and figure something out. So if the employer came up with an accommodation and offered it to the employee, and the employee just flat out rejected it. 
that would absolutely work against the employee because they have an obligation to cooperate with the employer in trying to figure this out. Um, the accommodation, excuse me, does not have to be the employee's first best choice. Um, it doesn't actually even have to be what they asked for. Um, and it doesn't have to um, eradicate the conflict 100%. Um, it just has to reasonably accommodate the conflict. Hmm. Um, that's what the law says. Management, sort of prudent management tells us that, you know, employers really should try to work with their employees and employees should really try and be flexible because both have a lot to lose and yeah. a lot to gain, you know, with this relationship. So the law says one thing, and I think, you know, gives relatively clear guidance for managers, but I think for most managers, they're, they're um you know, their their savvy and their strategy will tell them that, you know, there are probably a lot more things that they could do that would really go a long way in resolving the conflict, you know, keeping morale up. Yeah. Well, and it shows I think it shows everybody in the company how you'll be treated in in an extreme need or a scenario. I mean, this is this is a great way to not just accommodate and help the one, but it could also show you know, we want you, we value you. A lot of companies are talking about values today and how much we care about you. And we want you to have a whole life, except not here. And so if, if, you, if, if that, this is, this is a really, it's an interesting choice for companies. Um, let's take a break, uh, Cabrina, and come back. I want sure. you to come back and then walk us through, you outlined some ideas of, um, you know, just suggestions that you think would help to prevent some of the disagreements from, you know, boiling over into some major conflict. So I wanted to get into those and just keep learning from you. Find out uh, what else we need to do to maybe soften our hearts a bit and um, become more open to others' points of view as well, as well as getting results. We still got to deliver the goods. Stick with us, folks. More with Cabrina Chang and uh, her article in Harvard Business Review. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. To the Matt Townsend Show. On uh, the phone with this is uh, our guest, Cabrina Chang. Cabrina is a clinical associate professor of business law and ethics at Boston University and also is a writer with several different publications, including Cyber Law, Management, and Entrepreneurship. She also um, wrote a wonderful article on Harvard Business Review's um, page, What Companies Can Do When Work and Religion Conflict. Cabrina Chang, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Great to have you. Walk us through um, some of the steps that, uh, and, and just suggestions you make about what we should make sure, as, as I guess, as a company owner or an employer and as an employee, what, what are the things we need to remember in order to, to kind of bring our, eliminate some of our religious differences at work? Okay. Well, um, from a management perspective, there are several things like you said, that can happen both on the management side and also on the employee side. Um, In the article, and I think in general, it's always smart to start with whatever ethics 
policy or value statement um, that a company might already have. It seems sort of, um, not useless, but it, it seems sort of light um, and not, you know, not very practical and not very um, effective, but it goes a long way in establishing a culture and an environment where people generally, religion or any other issue, generally feel accepted and supported. Um, so my first suggestion would be to look at what already exists at your, at your place of work in terms of an ethics policy and see what it says about equal treatment regardless of traits like religion or, you know, whatever else. Yeah, make sure um, you've got one. Yeah, make sure you have one. <laughs> and if you don't, write one and include equal treatment of all employees. Um, and putting it on paper is a good first step. But then, of course, it's, it's meaningless unless you actually sort of live that. So, um, you know, at employee meetings or um, whatever sort of regular meetings there might be, um, you know, mentioning it uh, goes a long way in establishing that this is going to be a workplace where we're not going to tolerate this kind of thing, but also where we're also going to welcome everyone because, you know, given everyone's differences and that it's, it's sort of, it all, it's all good. It's all kind of what makes us smart and profitable and diverse and thoughtful and creative and all of these great things. So have it codified somewhere, but also talk about it. Make sure your employees know that it's something that's important. Um, You know, some employees, some, some businesses go so far as to have it, you know, on posters or on plaques or, you know, just up around the office. And it, it, it seems like I said, it, it seems, like not a very effective um, way of communication, but in setting a culture, it's it's kind of a, a, a small move that actually has a lot of impact. Yeah. Um, so that would be one thing to do. Um, in sort of more practical day-to-day things, look at the existing um, policies that you have in terms of time off, in terms of dress codes, um, anything that you think might possibly be impacted by a religious observance. So, you know, dress codes could um, definitely impact a religious observance with um, headscarves or wearing skirts versus pants, um, maybe wearing religious jewelry. Um, You know, so look at your dress code to make sure that it's flexible enough that um, if someone wore a headdress, that would not be in violation of whatever you have. You don't have to say specifically you're welcome to wear a headdress. Yeah, right. Um, but make your make your um, uh, dress code, if you have one, sufficiently broad that all of these things are included, that, that it wouldn't possibly rule something out based on that. Um, the same is true for time off. Um, if employers have, um, you know, a set, period of time or a set policy where there's a flexible number of days off that an employee doesn't have to say what they're using it for, mm-hmm. that could give employees a lot of room um, to <clears throat> fulfill religious observances. Um, a fixed number of, of days off that could be used for different reasons, for no reason, um, that gives employees a lot of flexibility in terms of whatever observances they might have. And it prevents conflicts. If they've got this little pool of time that they can use however they want, um, 
it, it allows them an avenue yeah. to observe whatever, whatever they need, um, whatever needs observing. Because um, you, you could not, not to interrupt Cabrina, but you sure. could, you could, um, have a lot of your holidays, you know, geared around religious holidays, religious, yeah. uh, where, where people would go practice a, an Easter or a Christmas. And, um, I, I, I wonder if, you don't have to not do that, but you could also just open up the policy to be able to use your time whenever you want to use your time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, um, you know, many employers are starting to um, starting to do things like that and not have it specifically, you know, we're going to be closed for the two days leading up to Christmas, uh, where employees can take those two days if they want. Um, or the day after Easter, or um, right, anything like that. It, it just it just avoids um, a lot of potential headaches for employers and employees because employees don't want the conflict to happen either. Um, and lastly, and, and this was something that didn't immediately jump out at me, um, but dietary restrictions. Um, kosher restrictions or other dietary restrictions, you know, it's um, if where you work has an open kitchen, uh, where I work has a refrigerator, <laughs> yeah. there could be other places that have, you know, a, a larger setup. Um, or if um, there's a cafeteria where you work or um, if where you work routinely orders lunch, keeping just in, you know, in the back of your mind that there could be some religious dietary restrictions. There's also another easy, low, like not, not a lot of heavy lifting, but an easy thing to do that could really be a very meaningful step for some employees um, and very easy to do on the part of management. Um, so, and then like we talked about earlier, anticipating upticks in staffing. Um, in the Cargill case, um, you know, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure. You know, it seems to me that their, their processing line is so regimented um, I, I'm not really sure what their uptick in production, where or whether that might come, but they're, they're so regimented um, that that's, that's very tricky. Um, but if you're at a place of employment that is not so regimented um, as a meat processing line that has to, you know, that has to have a certain productivity level every single shift, um, you know, it might be worth it to sit down and think about um, when is your office the busiest? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's easy to see, you know, around tax season, if you're certainly an accountant, but financial planner, that kind of thing, or earnings reportings or holiday retail, um, or if you're in higher education, you know, the beginning of semesters, um, you know, it might be worth it to sit down and think about, uh, when your highest productivity and staffing needs are um, and when your low points are, because that that will help you identify places where you really don't have a lot of room to work with and other places where you do. And identifying those, because the accommodation process is really supposed to be a give and take, by identifying those sort of peaks and valleys, you might be able to find some kind of creative solution. Mm. Yeah. Well, and it seems like this is one of the dynamics of HR is as you're hiring and hiring more diverse groups, then mm-hmm. you probably you have to like proactively 
start anticipating the needs. It's almost like the HR department needs to actively come down and talk to the managers and find out what requests are being made, what 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 you know what are uh, you know what um, accommodations are being asked for, even just subtly or quietly. Right, and that's an excellent way, by the way, of phrasing it. You would never want an HR person or anyone to sort of go around and ask employees, yeah. "What's your religion? Yeah. And what do you think you might need?" We're noticed there's uh, we're noticing there's more people from Ethiopia coming in now. So, right. yeah, that is you can't uh, do that. But but asking, have there been requests for accommodations? I think that is a, a perfectly reasonable and smart thing to ask. Um, especially if you're trying to really be proactive and creative and trying to figure out how to make all of this work. Mm. Um, that might be, that might be one, one way to go. And as I said in the article, and, and I don't see that it has changed, you know, in, in Colorado, in this cargo plant, both sides um, sort of have lost. You know, the, yeah. the, the Muslim workers don't feel um, as though they've been sort of heard and respected, and plus they're out of job. Right. But Cargill is also out a lot of really good employees. And in fact, Cargill, after after they fired um, the employees, and they said that was not that's not something we take easily. That was something that was difficult to do. They changed their rehiring policy. It, it used to be that if you got laid off, you had to wait 180 days to reapply. They changed that to 30 days to make it easier for these employees if they wanted to come back. Oh, wow. To make it easier for them to come back. Yeah. Um, I, that doesn't, of course, solve the underlying issue. Um, but it certainly makes it clear that both sides, obviously, have a lot to lose if this doesn't work and a lot to gain if they can make it work. Mm-hmm. Um, the, so. the, the message I keep hearing um, over and over, though, is really – uh, businesses accommodate and uh, employees cooperate. Right. Yeah. Adapt. Exactly. Work together. Yeah. Don't become enemies on this. And 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 I guess every individual needs to seriously check their bias. Are you are sure. you biased about this and and change? Right. And and that cannot go. Um, that that has to be sort of acknowledged in in all of this. That you absolutely have to have that in the forefront of your mind about it is bias towards Muslims or in this case Muslims or whatever the group may be, you, you always have to keep in the front of your mind is, you know, I have to check my bias. You're exactly right because, you know, the bias could be subconscious. Mm. Um, so I think that's a, a great point to mention and that both have to be flexible. Both have to be flexible, the employer and the employee in trying to figure this out. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's great advice, which is why I loved the article, Cabrina. Cabrina Chang oh, is her name. You. you did great. Keep keep writing, right? We need, we need more <laughs> insight you. like this. Thank you very much. You bet. And thank you for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. You, you bet. Cabrina Chang, uh, folks, keep reading her on HBR and you can, um, you can also Go to Cyber Law, Management and Entrepreneurship, which is a book that uh, she has written in. Uh, written um, Interesting insight, isn't it? It's, it's accommodation and cooperation. It's easy to have the rights, you know, and to argue the rights, but we also have to cooperate in the process of finding a better solution for everybody. 
Um, so make sure you're willing to be a cooperative manager and employee and make sure that we're willing to accommodate as the law prescribes and just really as your character prescribes and, and defines that you should do. So interesting stuff. We'll take a break. Come back. Continue the discussion. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. The words accommodate and cooperate, uh, a great example of that, not in the religion-slash-work environment, would be more in just the, I guess, home, creating a home, a place where you can rest, maybe watch a little TV. A guy named Peter Berkowitz, 25, uh, was fed up with the rent and the cost of an apartment in uh, the San Francisco area. Apparently, a one-bedroom apartment in San Francisco runs about $3,500 per month. So he went talked to and talked to his buddy, and his friend said, well, okay, I'll let you, I guess, sublet a little space in my apartment. And he built, Peter built, a, a tiny little bedroom pod in the living room of his friend. Just a tiny little bedroom pod. And we'll post the, uh, the pictures of it. It's eight foot by three and a half by four and a half feet. It's a little bedroom pod. And he pays $500 a month to live there. It's got a bed. It's got some shelves in it, some LED lighting. Um, he's going to put some cork on the outside of it because it's, you know, it's got to be soundproof. So he's now paying 500 bucks a month to basically live in a crate in a guy's living room in San Francisco. But it's a good deal. Want to hear the update on the story? Yeah. City officials in San Francisco contacted him afterwards to tell him that his box was a fire hazard and telling him that he had to move. They were alarmed that other people might follow his example and build these pods and, uh, I guess, catch their apartments on fire. You're you're saying, hold it. You are saying my pod is a fire hazard. What are you saying? Well, it's made of wood. The housing codes, the fire codes, and the building codes are fairly restrictive in terms of what you can and can't do inside in terms of coming up with another enclosed bedroom, said the director of public affairs for San Francisco's Department of Building and Inspection. With these types, uh, with these types of what I call creative efforts to try and cope with what everyone recognizes as a tough housing market, you still have to follow some basic safety rules. Hmm. <sighs> now, the medium for a one-bedroom medium price for a uh, median price for a one-bedroom San Francisco apartment is three thousand five hundred ninety dollars a month. I know his pod's only five hundred bucks. There you go. So he's trying to figure out a way I mean, to exist is, is, in that city. Hey, hey, I'll risk it. I'll risk a fire. Yeah. The city won't, but yeah. yeah the city great. won't let you. And yet, <laughs> interestingly, so is it possible that the city requirements and restrictions are what is causing the housing problem? No, it's the driving up of the uh, general price of houses, apartments, land. No, but but in the I area. wonder if a lot of the restrictions 
dry – like, for example, in San Francisco, a lot of the homes mm-hmm. had to be re, re, uh, retrofitted. retrofitted for uh, earthquake-proof. Could which be. was was a law. It might be Google, Facebook, mm-hmm. their, a, their fault. Too. I have a lot of family that live there. It's probably Google. Yeah, it's everybody's <laughs> fault. It's got to be Trump's fault somehow. Anyway, uh, don't be building a pod in some guy's apartment in San Francisco. They're going to get you. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. One more hour of solutions. We'll be right back. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? Your guide on the side. And a lot of us end up spending our entire life searching for what we expect instead of what has actually been given to us. Dr. Matt Townsend. With uh, President Obama's town hall meeting on gun safety, it just kind of shows us again how difficult it is to create uh, a, a really open conversation on such a polarized topic as guns. So I wanted to talk about how we can learn to persuade people, how we can influence others, um, and get people to believe in your cause without polarizing it. Because you you can't have a gun, a discussion about guns, it seems like, without it moving very quickly to the extremes, as it does on so many other issues in our culture, in our world. Um, For example, on terrorism and and the discussions of and war and going you know to Iraq and um, and abortion, but but in in the end we we look at the politicians they're extreme they're going to be extreme they have to be extreme they they have to placate and and do what they've got to do to their to get elected, but we don't right so we we are the people that are eventually going to elect these politicians and eventually are going to actually create the change like state senator Todd Weiler we just talked to um here's here's my view the power is is really in our hands to change these debates these discussions um we can change them in our local you know meetings on the local level but we can also just change them in our conversations around the dinner table so there's power and in and an ability for each of us to persuade people to be more open-minded, but you gotta you gotta kind of follow some principles. I wouldn't just say like Trump did. You know, Hillary, if she did, believes that guns are so dangerous, then her security team needs to lose all their guns. Okay, that, I mean it's a great point, Don. You, you nailed it. Donald Trump said that. The same is also true. If guns are so safe, Donald. Then everybody in your meetings and rallies should have their guns by their side. Now, can you imagine a three ten or three to ten thousand person rally with Donald Trump with ten thousand guns in the room? See, that's just ludicrous. It's crazy because we can't trust the few. There's just a few in the room that can't be trusted. And there's just a few in the room that the security guards around Hillary Clinton are protecting Hillary from. So if you notice, we're not fighting an argument of everyone. We're fighting an argument of just the few. But those are the things we're not talking about. We're not talking about just those few. And we're always trying to protect our rights. So listen, here's some principles for how to persuade other people to believe in more in in your cause. First, got to know what you believe. Know what you believe, but don't just know what you believe because, you know, you, you've got the talking points from, um, you know, the NRA or from, you know, the Democratic anti-gun movement. 
Know what you believe truly. What are the principles, for example, that of why you want to have a gun in your home? Is it safety? What else is it? Is it is it hobby to go hunting? Is it collection? You have so many different reasons. But why do you believe in what you believe? What are your principles for why you believe in pro-life or pro-choice? Understand your beliefs. And don't just understand them because somebody talked to you about them. I, for example, um, I, I was very pro-death penalty for a long time. And now I'm just kind of – I'm neutral. <laughs> I've moved to neutral by simply reading and studying more about how many innocent people are also being killed. And, you know, it scares me that we could make mistakes on the death penalty. And it's moved me back to center um, when I may have been more extreme in one way or another. But it came because I really dug deep to find out, is that something I actually believe or is that just one of the things that my party believes, right? So know what you believe. And before you try to convince everyone else of something, be informed and know what you believe. And please get more informed than just the local media, right, or the national media. Or just this one position. Understand both positions of the argument. Another thing you could do is show passion, not obsession. Nothing on earth is a better attractor than someone that's passionate. But also nothing is a greater repellent than a person that is an obsess- that's obsessed. So the guy that has to show up at a parade with, a, with an automatic rifle because he can, that's obsessive. That's not healthy. And it's, it's also not respectful to others. You can – if your obsession crushes everyone else's respect of others, then you're in trouble. You can be passionate about your guns and highly informed, but you don't need to become extreme. Moderation. Moderation in all things. The next rule is be the billboard. What I mean by that is very simply we are always the best demonstration of what we believe in. We always are the the one. We're the demonstrator. We're the best model. We're the best billboard of what we believe in. So if you want to influence people, then be the billboard. And the interesting thing about like billboard marketing is it's really about putting it up there and you want to keep your billboard up for a while or a long time because it's repetition, repetition, repetition. When people see that you're an open-minded person and informed about your views and able to hear other people's views – That billboard shows that you're trustworthy on this topic. If you could start showing that you're open-minded to hearing everyone else's opinion, which to me that town hall started to do for the president, I think, and it's why I think it would be powerful for the NRA to show that they're open-minded to hearing as well, um, then we could have some powerful discussions. But we are always the billboard. So if you really want to influence another human, be open to what others are saying. And then last but not least, to persuasion – Always think about the people, not the persuasion. The people are what matters. And in the end, it's going to be the people that will make the decisions. It will be the people that will will facilitate and, and make it easier for you to, to have the you know your goals achieved, or it will be the people that will fight against it. We have so many people in our culture and our country today fighting um, each other because no one's talking or thinking about the actual people involved. They're just trying to get their point across. Uh, When you hear a story like we heard earlier in the show of a a girl shooting accidentally her sister to death with her father's shotgun that he left out after a hunt, 
That's a people story. That should move you. That should actually at least make your heart open up a little bit. And you shouldn't just shut that down just so you can go back to your point. Yeah, but he should still have the right to have a gun. Sure, he should. We don't have to be pro-gun or anti-gun. We can be both. It's just the situation and how it impacts the people. Persuasion, folks. Think of people, not persuasion. Be the billboard. Show passion, not obsession. And truly know what you believe. That's how you influence people. Not just arguing louder or threatening them with, you know, repercussions. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. One of my favorite books ever. Hardest book to read I've ever experienced. Like, literally, I would read a page a day. But it was by Martin Buber, um, who was uh, a philosopher. And the book is called I and Thou. It was first published in 1923. But it reminds me of um, the power of a relationship. And he, in the book, uh, Martin Buber teaches that there's, there's two ways to kind of orient yourself to other people. As an I-it, meaning I, I'm the I, and you are an it, an object, separate from me. Or I can orient towards you as an I-thou. And a thou meaning I'm in a relationship with you that, um, that is, is sacred. That's the thou, right? So that's the terminology you'd use to address a god in your prayer, perhaps. So when we think about how we deal with the people around us, do you look at people as an it, as a Republican or a Democrat, as a male or a female, as a, a Muslim, a Mormon, a Catholic, a Jew? How do you orient to people? Do you orient by their color? Do you orient by their degree? And uh, Martin Buber talks about the fact that eventually our healthiest relationships are where we see people as a thou, an I-thou relationship, where I revere you, I respect you. And if I, if I see you as a thou, then there's something holy about you. Uh, Emerson used to teach that there's a divine spark inside of each one of us. And that divine spark has to be honored. It has to be upheld. Which means I've got to be careful how I talk about you, right? I've got to be careful what I say or I don't say. I need to be willing to listen to what you are saying because you are special. You're not just a thing or an it, which is why our labels in our world, are it's so uh, possibly devastating because the minute I've labeled you, you become an it for me. Even, by the way, with our children, we can make our children an it, an object, because they're our children, right? That's my daughter, and I could end up seeing her as an it instead of a thou. So it's just powerful to start realizing that between each one of us, there's a relationship. And how I look at you depends on how, in the end, I will treat you. And wouldn't it be powerful if we could see the divine spark in everyone around us? How would that change the dialogue of our candidates? How would it change the dialogue in our families if we could just see that there's a divinity inside of each and every one of us. Powerful, powerful stuff. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We thought that we would have, you know, a lot of time to focus. With all this technology, it would buy us more time, right? More time to be with the people we love, more time to be attentive and in tune. And in reality, what ends up happening is not even close. We still don't have time. And so, and what I'm talking about is a simple idea 
of being in love, right? So when somebody thinks about being in love, they always think of the love part. Like the, the love is the, is the important part. You got to, as long as you have the love part, life is going to be great. But what I'm going to be focusing on is not the love part, but the in part. You know, the in, you got to be in love. It's kind of like being in debt. It's not the debt. It's being in the debt. That's the problem. When you're inundated in the debt, ugh, it's the problem. But if we could be inundated in the love, then life would be great. We're just overwhelmed and so full of love for each other. So when we talk about it, I'm going to get into four different things to make sure that we get in. And our nature, really, uh, we've been told, is a great way to get in. And part of that is because it just automatically probably takes you to a whole different level of in vibration of life, I guess, because normally we're just kind of vibrating off of our screens and we're just feeling all of this intensity. In our marriages, in our relationships, four keys to get in the relationship. Number one, you got to tune into your partner. I've been married 25 years in a couple of days, and um, here's the deal. If I don't listen to my partner, if I don't pay attention to my partner, then I do not have a clue what her needs are, her wants are. You have got to learn, all of us have got to learn to tune in to what's really going on with our spouse. What are they really thinking? By the way, like you remember the old radio tuner where you had to tune in and dial in the radio? You might have to adjust it depending on where you were. But the minute you tuned in, it would eliminate a lot of the static. It would get rid of some of the interference. We've got to figure out and be present enough with our spouses to be able to tune into what they're really trying to say. And after 25 years, we should be really good at it, right? Well, only if you've been in. If you haven't been in, then you're not going to be great at being able to dial into what your partner's saying. Some solutions for that are very simply find ways to clarify what your partner is saying. Don't assume you know what they mean because they're saying certain words. Ask him, what do you mean by that? When you say that, I don't know, I'm worried about today. It's not going to go so well. Don't assume you know exactly what that means and don't just like answer it for them. What do you mean? What are you worried about? And let them explain more. Spend more time actually looking at your partner. You know, it's easier to tune into something that you're looking at, right? It might be easier to tune into somebody that you're listening to. So we can tune in with our eyes. We can tune in with our ears. We can tune in with our whole heart. We got to tune into our partner. Another rule, allow your partner in. One of the biggest complaints I hear from uh, in marriage uh, coaching and relationship coaching is, I don't even feel like I know my husband. He doesn't even let me into his world. She asks you how your day is. You're like, fine, my day's fine. No more need to discuss it. Do you let your spouse in? Do they share what's really in their heart and in their mind? Do they feel safe enough to share it? Because if they don't feel safe enough to share it, they're not going to share it. Are you a, a safe spouse or will, you know, you get laughed at? We've got to allow our partners into our fears, our beliefs, our concerns, and that means you've got to be able to hear it. Uh, there was some interesting research done of women that say they want to hear what's going on in their husband's heart, what they're thinking in their mind. And as soon as the husband shares it, almost inevitably, the wife's like, oh, I can't believe you're thinking that. You always think that. I know. My bad. If you want to, your partner to share more, you've got to be able to handle what they bring, and you've also got to be able to make it safe. Another rule is stay more involved in each other's lives. A complaint I hear all of the time is it doesn't seem like my partner's even 
into the family. They're not even paying attention. They're never involved, which means, dads, you need to help more. Be there for homework. Help your kids do their assignments. Run the carpools more. Pick up the team. Drive the team. Be involved. Also, can I just suggest watch out for how we do our distribution of chores and of um, division of labor. You will make these divisions when you're young, maybe naive. The wife does everything on the inside of the house. The husband does everything on the outside of the house. Be careful, ladies, because there's because we have lighting and technology inside the house. You can end up working all night till midnight, but we can only mow the lawn until it's dusk. If you want a fair and equal division of labor, we're going to have to learn to talk about it. And then last but not least, you got to touch. You got to be in touch with each other. If you remember, that's where a lot of the chemicals started in the first place. So make sure you're touching. Uh, and you can touch, you know, in non-sexual ways. You can hold hands. You can hug. You can kiss in front of the kids and drive them crazy. That's the reason we're in love, right? Keep in touch. That's one of the goals. Stay involved. Allow your partner in and tune in to your partner. That's the way you stay in love more ideas, more tools to help you find the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, do you ever wish you had the nerves of steel of Jack Bauer or the observation skills of Sherlock Holmes or perhaps the adventurous spirit of Frodo Baggins? You know, we all have heroes in literature, movies and video games. There are characters who have attributes and skills that we all wish we had. And our guest today, Steve Cam, is the author of Level Up Your Life a book that talks about how to become your own superhero. He joins us now. Uh, Mr. Cam, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. <laughs> Matt, thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you. Now, first of all, uh, talk to us a little bit about your love of these video games, the love of the movies, and your concept of leveling up. Sure. Well, I think I like to say as, as, a, as a kid, I was raised by two loving parents. And uh, Nintendo Entertainment System. <laughs> I was uh, I, I was born right around that time when the original Nintendo came out, and ever since then, I've just been captivated by this idea of watching a character from a far off land uh, kind of grow up and and go through uh, this kind of transformative journey and become this amazing, amazing character that that does uh, life changing things, saves the world, saves the princess. Save the prince, save themselves, whatever. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's it's been something that I've just I've I've truly fallen in love with. And in addition to that, uh, you know, I found myself more and more often escaping into games and books and movies. You know, like Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter, Hunger Games, and imagining myself as that character. And a, a few years ago, I realized I was spending more and more time kind of drifting through life and and. And spending more more of my free time waiting to just get back into those imaginary worlds, and eventually came to the realization that life is happening outside of a screen and outside of a book. Mm. And in order for me to to do the things that I've always 
said I wanted to do but hadn't accomplished, I had to start thinking like those characters. And I, I kind of transformed my life into a video game and drew inspiration and, and education, really, from those same characters and have since gone on to travel the world, learn to play musical instruments, uh, get stronger and healthier than I've ever been. And it's been a really fun journey along the way. And you did it. I mean, this is, I think, awesome because how many kids do I know that love video games and, you know, they they have to kind of level up. Like in your article, you talk about the fact that you might start out with a cloth tunic and a rusted dagger, and eventually <laughs> you're going to make your way to, you know, having some other powerful source or forces and other skills and tools and be more advanced. Most of the kids I know would love to just start at level 50, and that's kind of what they all want to be. But in reality, like you're saying, you just got to start at level one and just keep leveling up. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting, actually. There's this great concept out there from, uh, in behavioral psychology called the progress principle. And it's the idea that we as humans love to make progress. If you've ever played a game like Candy Crush or yeah. Mario or World of Warcraft, and you just say, oh, one more level, oh, I'll kill one more bad guy, oh, I'll solve one more puzzle, it's because our brains are wired to love this idea of showing ourselves incremental progress. Uh, same thing like if you've ever put together a, you know, a tabletop puzzle. Anytime you get those puzzle pieces connected, like your brain releases this chemical called dopamine that makes you feel happy, and you chase it, which is why video games have become so addicting for so many. So I thought, why don't we, why don't we turn our life into the game and create a, level, a system of levels and missions and quests for us to complete? And as we complete those things, we can actually cross those goals off, earn experience points, and level up and get that same addictive hmm. kind of happiness release in our brain, but have it be as a result of not us sitting on a couch, but rather us out in the world exploring or us trying something new, uh, doing something that scares us, uh, getting healthier, visiting a new location, trying to cook a new meal or something along those lines. That's great. And really, it, it, it then it becomes the game of life, right? The game of your life. <laughs> exactly. How yes, great. Exactly. I've, I've, I've been living this game for uh, a few years now, and I can tell you it's a lot more exciting than any video game I've ever played. Yeah. And, yeah, and in the end, you know, if you do it right, you might have some money to go buy more games. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, I, I had to swear off video games for a few years to get things organized, and now I have a good balance of I play games occasionally, but I, I'm still, you know, I'm learning to play the violin at the moment. I'm trying to figure out where to travel to next and setting some great goals in the gym and, and things along those lines. But it, it really required me to take an active approach of how am I living my life and how can I take those same things I used to love on a screen and kind of like retroactively build my life around them and mm. uh, make them things that I can do day to day. Well, so talk to the parents out there. I mean, I imagine a parent that's whose their kids love video games and to try to convince the kid that the real world life could be just as exciting as the on-screen life. What would you say to that parent to teach their kids that principle? Sure. Well, that's, I think first and foremost is understanding that video games inherently are not are not bad. No. I, I personally, I love them. I think they're, I've, I've learned a lot about grit and determination and, and perseverance and, and teamwork and things like that. So I think there's plenty of aspects of video games that are phenomenal. And if, if your child loves to play them, uh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily, you know, remove them from the house or say, you know, you're not allowed to play them. However, I think it's important to talk to your kid and say, what is it about this game that you love? 
and and sit down and say like, hey, is there any way we can uh, we can try to do this in real life? Uh, just to share an example, you know, in this book, Level Up Your Life, I wanted to prove to other people that it's not just something for a guy like me, but for anybody. You know, I share stories of single parents and and uh, retired couples and things like that who have gamified their lives. There's one gentleman I share. His name is Thomas. He is a construction foreman, but he fell in love with this. Uh, Japanese comic about a, a single dad and his son. And Thomas is a single dad, and he ended up creating a series of quests and missions for him and his son to complete uh, in martial arts. So when they get together on weekends to spend their quality time together, they've gamified that in a fun way. So they're not only spending time together, but they're taking concept from a game and, or a comic that they've loved and also getting physical activity mm. and proving to themselves the progress principle that they, they can make progress in martial arts and have a lot of fun together doing it too. That's great. And I mean, I, I've seen just with raising my own kids that turning it into a game makes it so it doesn't seem so formal. Right. It's like it's not this <laughs> right, sure. it's not as real. And it's it's almost like they like my kids don't even know we're talking if we're playing a game while we're doing it. But That's I could absolutely. I can get a lot of information out of them. Oh, I love it. And I think I think when you can disguise I, I not not to, not I mean disguise, but rather, you know, when exercise becomes something that's enjoyable purely for the fun of it, mm. you know, be it uh, a martial art or, or learning to dance, gymnastics, um, uh, whatever it parkour, whatever it may be, something fun that, that gets the kid excited and engaged and it doesn't feel like exercise to them, I think they can get hooked on that. And if you can then combine that with some sort of fun leveling system, and it can be very basic. You know, I, I, what I said was every time I completed five quests, that was enough for me to level up and move on to my next, uh, my next challenge or level my character up, me being the character in this game. Yeah. And then we're, I guess, talk, talk about how how you made your own transition. So you were sitting there thinking, I get, I'm, I'm doing, I'm spending too much time on video games. And is that how, is that how it started? Is you just became aware that you're, you're not going <laughs> yeah, anywhere? Believe it or believe it or not. So there's this great concept in, in, uh, called the hero's journey. It's the idea that every great story in history follows a very similar story arc. There's a character that, you know, they receive some sort of call to action and it's either thrust upon them or they make a decision. And then they go in this, extraordinary journey where they encounter challenges and uh, recruit allies, defeat bad guys, and return home a changed person. For me, my call to action was, was actually that my homemade computer you know, that I had built uh, blew up on me, oh, boy. and I couldn't afford to fix it, and I didn't have enough money to, to fix it to get back to playing more video games, and that was kind of like my call to action on my journey, hmm. to say like, all right, man, this is that moment for you. You can't play these games anymore. You have to, let's, let's figure out what's going on here and kind of like analyze my life. So I thought to all those games and all those movies and, you know, just uh, for an example, I grew up loving James Bond. So mm. I was like, what would it be like to live a weekend like James Bond? And I was like, well, I'm clearly not going to become an international spy, but I bet there's a fun way that I could live like James Bond for a weekend. So I got very specific with it and it, it ended up with me in a tuxedo in the Monte Carlo Casino mm. in the Principality of Monaco for a weekend. And I did it all very cheap, very bare bones, but on the outside it looked like I was uh, actually looked and I felt like I was James Bond. So, you know, I had a lot of fun kind of reverse engineering my characters and movies and heroes and seeing if I could come up with a real world equivalent of those things and then just put systems in place uh, in place that I talk about throughout the book. Mm. Uh, put systems in place to actually get me to start crossing those things off. That's great. Is that and that's what you call gamifying? You you <laughs> yeah, turned exactly. your life into the game. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think the the issue many people have is that everybody says, oh, I wish I could travel more or, oh, I'd love to mm-hmm. learn how to do so-and-so, but they never get specific with it and they don't have the right systems or support you know, support group in place to make those things happen. So I got very specific with my goals. I kind of manufactured my my life around those things so that every day I was working towards uh, whether it was saving money for my next trip or spending just five minutes working on a language or learning an instrument. But I got very specific and put a system in place so that those things became a daily habit for me to improve, and I got addicted to improving myself. And, uh, you know, it went from this vague, nebulous idea of like, oh, I want to travel to, no, I'm going to live like James Bond uh, in Monaco. I'm going to find Nemo on the Great Barrier Reef. (laughs) I'm going to learn to play the violin and travel to Ireland. I'm going to uh, volunteer once a week for a year to, you know, to to give back, whatever it may be. I think everybody lives life differently. And there's no reason why you can't create a game that lines up with what you're interested in, be it fitness or you know, dance, cooking, volunteering, travel, whatever it may be, uh, it, it just comes down to getting specific with it and putting the right pieces in the, in the right place. Oh, that's amazing. And, and then I guess then you eventually then put it into the book um, that we're talking about, which is basically, uh, it's called Level Up Your Life, How to Unlock Adventure and Happiness by Becoming the Hero of Your Own Story. Yes. Yeah. So I, throughout the book, it's, it's, I share my story. I share some examples and very specific instructions on how to start kind of converting your life into a game or a movie. Uh, and then, like I said earlier, I, I share a ton of stories throughout the book from people of all walks of life and all economic backgrounds, uh, you know, whether it's college kids or uh, recently unemployed, recently divorced. Uh, older people with children, whatever it may be, I share stories from each of those different examples to show you like, hey, I don't care how old you are or where you come from. I'm just more interested in helping you get to where you want to go and helping you get there and in the most fun, enjoyable, uh, challenging, you know, exciting way as possible. That's great. Steve, let's take a break and come back, continue this journey. I'd love to find out when we come back, uh, what are some other steps that we can take um, to to kind of level up our, our lives. Uh, one of the things I love is how you set up our characters and how we can kind of design the character we want to be in life. Uh, Steve Cam is his name. The, the name of his book is Level Up Your Life. And uh, it's a book that talks about how to become our own superhero, also to kind of go live out our, our dreams and make our wildest dreams, I guess, come true. Also, he um, runs a website called nerdfitness.com. Nerdfitness.com is a great resource to go get all of the information as well about what Steve is doing. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion. Stick with us, folks, helping you uh, really, truly reignite that superhero inside of you and take your life back. We'll be right back. Stick with us. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we are talking about how you can use your favorite video games and movies to level up your life and really go out there and, and find this 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 inner you, this, this uh, inner superhero, this inner video game character, and, and really bring it to life in your own life. Joining us is Steve Cam. He is the author of the book Level Up Your Life, How to Unlock Your Adventure and Happiness, by becoming the hero of your own story. And uh, Steve also has a great website you might want to go check out called nerdfitness.com, where you can also get a lot of information about 
what what he does and and see some of his great uh, work with his book and his blogs. Steve, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me stick around. This is it's. A, I think it's a really empowering idea. I mean, a, a lot of people are moved by media, right? By their video games or by their um, by by the movies they see. And you made a great point where we sometimes disconnect from kind of that world and our real world. We don't see how we could ever go create a life like that. And yet you're saying you can, you just need to become intentional about it. I think intention is, is one of the most important things. So, you know, recently it's been kind of superhero movies are, are in, you know, I think so many people are probably going to wander out of a theater and say, man, wouldn't it be cool to be Batman or, Oh, wouldn't it be awesome to be Superman? And, and, more often than not, people have that, that conversation with their friends, like, oh, I'd love to fly, or I'd love to do this or that, or they watch James Bond, or they play a game. And I was that guy. I was, I was a daydreamer. You know, I, I went to work at a job I didn't love and, and came home and sat on my couch and, and escaped more often than not into another game, another movie, and, and daydreamed about what those things were like. And eventually I got to the point where I realized that life had to be lived and I had to do it with intention. And the only intention or like the only path that I knew were the things that, that helped raise me. Those heroes, Super Mario, Leg- uh, Link from the Legend of Zelda, Captain America, Superman, those are the characters that, that taught me the lessons I needed to learn about growing up. So I, 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 not knowing any better, I was like, let's just let's, let's try to take those things and, and turn them into, turn myself into a character like those guys and, and see what happened. And it's turned into this kind of whirlwind, crazy journey of uh, globetrotting adventures and, and challenging myself with things that, that, that scare the heck out of me. And uh, it, I've met a lot of really great people along the way as well. It's been so much fun. Yeah. And, and you, I guess one of the things that you talk about in the article on lifehacker.com is the idea that, you know, just like in the movies or just like on the video game, we have a character that we play. And you're, you're saying that we, we need to decide what our character is going to be. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, it's funny. I, I wrote this book from like the perspective of a skeptical nerd, because that's who I am. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I understand there are certain books out there where it's like, oh, just believe it and it will happen. And I looked at it from the perspective of, okay, like let's get very scientific and dig into the nitty gritty on this stuff. And, and can you actually do this realistically? Can you turn yourself into a character? And, uh, you know, I, I thought about the, my favorite characters from those, from those uh, stories that I loved growing up. And I realized that they all had dual existences. Uh, for example, you know, Superman is by day, he's a mild mannered reporter mm. and uh, Indiana Jones is a archaeology professor during the day. And I thought it was kind of neat. Like here we have these world, you know, world traveling, all powerful superheroes that also have day to day responsibilities and bills to pay and things to take care of in the real world. And then they have this alter ego version of themselves that, that do amazing things. And I was like, that, that lines up perfectly with how I want to live my life. I have bills to pay. I have a, a, an apartment to keep clean. I have friends to hang out with, ob- obligations to take care of. But there's also this other part of me that wants to travel and learn and grow and, and do things that maybe the regular version of me is afraid to try. So why don't I create a superhero version of myself? And I encourage people through, uh, actually, if you go to levelupyourlife.com, you can create your own character. Uh, it's completely free. And you can decide, write your origin, like your backstory. Everybody loves the, the you know, the, the backstory of, of why, how a superhero came to be. Right. So it's, I think it's really fun for people to kind of 
get very creative and, and have some fun with creating the backstory of what their alter ego is and then deciding what that alter ego wants to become, like what kind of character they want to be, what kind of story do they want to play out. And, and once you make those decisions, then it's, it, then it's simply putting one foot in front of the other or identifying that, that first quest or mission that this alter ego version of you, you know, that might have to work after school or after work or before your kids wake up in the morning. What is it, what's the quest or mission that you're working on for that particular day? Hmm. I mean, I so I taught forever leadership and time management and the importance of making a mission statement, and it's the exact same thing that you're talking about, and understanding your roles and your goals, and you're doing the exact same thing. You're just actually making it relate to where these people already have been, where they've already been <laughs> fantasizing, Absolutely. where their mission has already you know been fulfilled in a way. Yeah, and it's funny, you know, some people are like, well, you started this website called Nerd Fitness, do you realize that, you know, down the road when Marvel got big and superheroes got in great shape, like, this whole idea <laughs> of being nerdy and fit is now in. I was like, I, you know, I started this eight years ago, or I bought the domain, I think, nine years ago, because that's, that's, my, that's my world. Those yeah. are my people. Like, I play video games, and I want to help people get healthy. So, you know, these, these, I, didn't, I didn't like, oh, this is a, a clever way to do this. So this is the only way I knew how to do it, because these that. are the guys that raised me. These are the characters that, that help shape who I am as a person, and it made sense to give them an opportunity to help shape the kind of the next version of me too, uh, which is this, you know, superhero alter ego version that, that does amazing things that the regular me would be scared to try. Right. Well, and like you're saying, you don't need to maybe, you don't need to go try to like Superman reverse the spin of the earth. <laughs> uh, that might be harder to accomplish, but, but like, bit you, difficult, yeah. yeah, but you went and you did go to Monaco and you became Bond and you wore a tux and you saw Monaco and you hanged out, the, you were hanging out there for a week being the man. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, when I, when I say find adventure, and I think adventure is something that's, like, inherent or, like, in our DNA mm-hmm. as, a, as a human species. Like, we just always want to know, like, hey, what's over that hill or what's, uh, what's, you know, what's under that lake or what's behind that cave, which is what I loved about uh, video games. I, I just found it was so, I think for everybody, it, Adventure means something different. For me, it meant going to Monaco and living like James Bond or going to Machu Picchu in Peru. For somebody else, if they've never traveled before, it might be as simple as camping in their backyard with their kid or visiting the next state over to attend a swing dance competition that they're terrified to, to be a part of. Mm. It's, it's those things that make you feel alive, that remind you, like, hey, today is a great day to be on this planet. And, uh, you know, something that kind of reminds you why, why you're lucky to be here. Uh, whatever that means for you, I think that's, that's adventure. And that's which is why we all get that. So that's the great part about this game called life. We can all play it in a different way. Adventure means something different to each of us. Uh, what is important is it's, it's something that challenges us, that uh, helps us, you know, kind of lose track of time because we're having so much fun with it. And uh, it's something that will... You know, we're not collecting more possessions, which I think far too many people do in an effort to be happier. We're collecting experiences and stories, and those are the things we'll be telling our grandkids, you know, 60 years from now, or the things we'll be telling our friends sitting in rocking chairs 70 years from now saying, remember that time we went to Machu Picchu, or do you remember that time we camped in the backyard and, and then there was a torrential downpour? Those are the things I think we're, we should be collecting and banking, and uh, just because the value for them is... Uh, invaluable, really. Well, you also are big in the idea of the rewrite, and um, and so maybe explain that to us because it seems like everybody at some point in their life 
is going to need a new uh, going to need a rewrite. Like this isn't where <laughs> I wanted to be, but you can turn it in apparently to something else. Sure, I, I, I worry that too many people end up too far down a path that they think they can't get out of, and they just like, well, it's you know, I'm, I'm in this career and I've been here for 20 years, and or you know, my dad died young of a heart attack and I'm overweight, so I'm just going to continue this cycle. Uh, I've I run a community of people that have bucked the trend, that have uh, you know chosen to change their fate, so to speak, and decided that the path that they're on doesn't mean it needs to be the path that they stay on. And if they decide at some age, regardless of how old they are, or a relationship falls apart, they lose their job, uh, these things are not, you know, it's not game over. It's just an opportunity to, uh, it's a plot twist, really. You know, and every, think about any great story. Some, some guy or woman is out there trying to find a treasure, and then they meet somebody, and that person gets captured, and all of a sudden the story changes. Now it's about Re, you know, capturing or rescuing, uh, rescuing this person. Life can take plot twists as well. I, I think you just have to be open to them. So uh, I think it's important for people to realize that no matter how old you are or how far down a path you might be, you always have a choice. And there's always an opportunity to change. It might mean you taking late night coding classes to learn a uh, learn how to code a language so you can change careers, or it might mean you might need to downsize your house so that you can uh, take a job in a path that you're absolutely that you're actually enjoying instead of one that you're merely existing in. So I, I think people need to realize no matter how far down a certain path they are, you can always you can always divert, you can always throw a plot twist in there and and try other things. So it's it's never too late. And you're the author of your fate, right? You're the you're the captain. Yes, you're the, you're the one that's yeah, uh, you're, master your fate, yeah. captain of my soul. Correct. I mean, it's, to me, that's boy, that's empowering to know that whatever's thrown your way, you, you'll you'll rewrite it. I guess is that what you mean by the rebellion and the rebels? <laughs> yeah, Talk so, about that, because that's a big sure, part so. of uh, almost any really good story is a rebellion or a rebel. Yeah. So when I started Nerd Fitness years ago. I, I was curious, or I, I wasn't sure what to call our community. You know, I was like, I run a website called Nerd Fitness, and I can't just call ourselves, we're not a community. That doesn't sound nerdy enough to me. So as, as a big fan of Star Wars, I asked the community, I asked my, the members in there, and I said, hey, do you guys want to be part of starting an empire? Or, I'm sorry, uh, building an empire? Or starting a rebellion? And overwhelmingly, the response came in that people wanted to start a rebellion. And I just thought that was so neat and so, so... Uh, appropriate. I don't know. We, I think whether it's nerdy stereotypes or a life that we're not excited about or things that people tell us we should do, uh, there's always an opportunity, I think, to, to kind of go against the trend. And more often than not, it's those that, that swim against the current, those that zig when others zag. Uh, those are the people that, that end up finding happiness, growth, and, and change. And, uh, but it requires, it requires a decision. Hmm. So for nerd fitness, it's, it's us rebelling against uh, kind of a life of mediocrity, a life of following in the footsteps of or following a path that we're not thrilled with or a path that we think is inevitable. And it's rebelling against that fate that and, and rewriting it ourselves. And uh, it's it's kind of cool. The, the rebellion really started as me just writing a, some blog posts a few times a week. And it's since evolved into this worldwide community of, of people from all walks of life that are helping and supporting each other get healthier, live happier, and uh, do more exciting things. That's great. So people can then go to your website and join the rebellion? Yeah, you can join the rebellion. It's at nerdfitness.com. 
There's some free ebooks you can download. I send out two free articles per week. Uh, if you go to levelupyourlife.com, you can read the first chapter of the book, which tells my entire James Bond story. You can create a character there completely free. And uh, if you so choose, uh, check the book out. It's available in bookstores and on uh, Amazon and you know Barnes & Noble and websites. Man, great stuff. Uh, Steve, appreciate uh, your time with us today and also just your creativity in, in taking something that might bore some people to death, uh, like life change, and turning it into a seriously powerful adventure. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity. You bet. Steve Cam's his name. Again, go to levelupyourlife.com or nerdfitness.com. Uh, great stuff. Great tools to help all of us uh, create a, and live a healthier, happier life. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back and uh, wrap up uh, this hour of the show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Again, doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier, happier life. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, now we know how to level up. Uh, We were working with Ben in the uh, last few minutes about him leveling up, and I asked him what superhero he wanted to be, and don't even name the name. But it's just not appropriate. Ben? You asked me an honest question, and I gave you... That would level you down. We need to get you higher. If you want... You can you can level up to me. Really? Let me be your superhero. Please, no. <laughs> Let me be the wind beneath your wings. This is getting kind of weird. Yeah, it is. Hey, um, okay, so here's the deal. Let's say you are a little girl from, you know, wherever, Texas or somewhere. And um, you release a balloon. I mean, how many times have you released a balloon up into the sky, and you don't know how far that balloon's going to travel. Well, an Eaton, Ohio woman found a deflated balloon with a message on it stating that it had floated all the way from Cisco, Texas. April Pope of Eaton, Ohio, shared a photo of the balloon, which bore the message, hello, all the way from Cisco, Texas, to the Cisco Chamber of Commerce Facebook. Now, check this out. You're, you you leave them. That's 948 miles. You just let go of a balloon and you're polluting a whole other state, by the way. But how interesting is it that you – we've all wondered how far that your balloon went. You know, I always thought it was 30 miles. You know, maybe it made it – maybe it may be 50 miles, but 948 miles. So you never know, do you? You never know that uh, – One little kid's balloon at the zoo floating away into space may eventually make it uh, almost a 1,000 miles away. Who'd have thunk it? Again, another data point that you don't get everywhere, for heaven's sakes. How about uh, this crazy story? Because, you know, life is about, you know, trying to give you what you can. You've heard us bring up um, Bodie McBoatface as the name of that new research vessel. Well... You know, that's being, I guess, blown up in the UK. They don't like that idea. So the people of uh, in Australia are, have decided again to name their council a silly name like Beachy McBeachface. Excellent. And when you think about it, uh, why on earth do they keep asking people to send in their suggestions? 
But uh, in uh, the people of Australia have spoken. They want a council in the eastern suburbs of Sydney to be named Beachy McBeachface. It's where they're now actually combining three councils into one. And as they join these together, they need a name. So they decided to uh, put that out you know, to the media and say, hey, public, give us some ideas for what we should name our new council. Well, again, it's flying in, Beachy McBeachface. A spokesperson told the publication that out of the 200 actual entries so far, the most popular has been Beachy McBeachface. So can I just give some advice? Anybody that's seeking public involvement to name something, don't. Just stop it. Don't ask for the public's involvement unless you're going to use their name. You're going to get silly names. I think that's great analysis. Thank you. Beachy McBeachface. Can you imagine having going to like your city council meeting and it's called the Beachy McBeachface City Council Meeting? Here are the Beachy McBeachface minutes from the meeting. Don't ask, folks, if you don't really want to use it. Come on. You're going to just set yourself up. See, Ben, that's why at times we ask for your feedback and at other times we don't. So do you really want my feedback when you ask for it? It depends. Oh, yeah. It depends on what we're talking about. I always thought you were just hitting a quota. Like a quota for asking you? Yeah. From what the producers wanted? No. Okay. That makes me feel better. Yeah. It's like a ghost town around here. Have you noticed? It's a ghost town. Everybody's gone because finals are over, school's out. So it's just Ben and I. I'm the most loyal employee you've got. Yeah. And the most financially needy. Yep. Which is why you're here, huh? Mm-hmm. Not because you love the show. Just because you need the dough. Folks, we're going to take a break. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. 